Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. U.S. Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl was recently freed in Afghanistan in exchange for five Taliban prisoners from Guantanamo. Some say the United States should not negotiate with extremists. This deal places American troops under increased danger, to say nothing of the harm the freed inmates could possibly do. Others say the U.S. government has a solemn duty to bring home all of its people from war. Amos Giora served for 19 years in the Israel Defense Forces as lieutenant colonel. He's now retired. He held a number of uh, senior command positions, including commander of the IDF School of Military Law and legal advisor to the Gaza Strip. He was involved in the release of Palestinian prisoners in his role as judge advocate general. He's now a University of Utah law professor, an expert on counterterrorism and national security. He recently uh, wrote an article for the New York Times about his involvement in prisoner release negotiations for Israel. And he joins us from Israel for today's Access Utah. Professor Giora, welcome to the program. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you uh, taking the, the time, especially with the, uh, the time difference there. Um, My pleasure. Uh, I wonder, uh, first of all, how this the Bergdahl exchange is being seen in, in Israel, if, if indeed it is. Uh, making a dent in the news there. There was little commentary here about the exchange, um, and the commentary that there was viewed it as as the the matter of fact right course of action in the context of bringing a soldier home. Mm-hmm. And from from the perspective of the Israeli public, you know, it's never a hundred percent, but here the overwhelming majority of the public. Um, is supportive of, of, of whatever it takes to bring a soldier home with the understanding that the price can be steep, but that, as you said at the, very, at your begin, at the beginning of your show, that the, the, that obligation, or what I refer to in the New York Times piece, is a, is a, is a contract between the state and, and the soldier, that's all but a given here. Even though, even though we could get into this, there's always going to be criticism in prison releases, prisoner exchanges, but when uh, the president made the decision and was announced here, um, I think it was seen as an obvious where there was criticism, and this is very different, two different paradigms. Here in Israel, when a soldier is captured and is held in captivity, it is in the newspaper day in, day out. It is literally the topic of conversation. And that's not the case in the United States. I mean, Bergdahl was held for five years, and it was not in any way front and center in the American media. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it occurs to me, I, I hadn't been on my radar for sure until the, the, the release was and the exchange was, was announced. I wonder if you'd uh, take me through a, a couple of the cases that you outline in your uh, New York Times piece. Um, sure. So Israel, the society, were, and the government has gone through this. There are three cases that are, three or four that are, that are important. The, the the highlight is is Gilad Shalit, who was captured by Hamas in uh, the spring of 2006, held for five years, and released in August of 2011 by Prime Minister Netanyahu. In exchange for Gilad Shalit, uh, Israel released over 1,000 Palestinian prisoners. Important to add that when Israel releases 1,000 Palestinian prisoners, they are um, they end up in Gaza, which is literally 10 kilometers, six miles south of the Israeli city of Ashkelon. It's not like in the U.S. paradigm where the five 
guys who are released from Guantanamo go to Qatar and then they'll end up wherever they'll end up. In the U.S. prisoner exchange, there's no geographical proximity like there is here. Mm-hmm. The second important example is two Israeli soldiers who were wounded and subsequently we know now were killed um, in the spring of 2006. Their bodies are returned in 2008. In exchange for their bodies, Israel released um, someone named Samir Kuntar, who for years and years had been considered, quote-unquote, the, the arch-terrorist and the one terrorist who can never, ever be released because of the terrorist attack that he had, been, um, he had committed in 1979. And he, in, what makes that case critical from our perspective of our conversation is that when Israel agreed to release Kuntar for the two soldiers, it was not 100% clear if they were dead or alive because they had been captured in an ambush and they were clearly badly wounded. There was significant um, blood on the scene. In retrospect, we know that they were killed, but when the government made the decision, it did know they were dead, and yet it releases this gentleman, this guy, Samir Kuntar, um, who had for years been considered un- undealable. Go back to October of 1986, an Israeli navigator named Ron Arad, uh, his plane um, falls in Lebanon. The pilot is saved. Ron Arad is the navigator. Um, his wife, Tommy, um, it's a different age, it's a different era, um, believed that what the government, when she was told the government's doing everything to get her husband home, he never came home. No release was ever done, and there's no doubt that we could talk about this also, that the Shalit family and the two families of those two other soldiers clearly learned from Tami Arad how to conduct a, the public relations battle to get your husband home or your loved one home. And the fourth one is 1985, in exchange for three Israeli soldiers, Israel released 1,500 um, Palestinian terrorists, three for 1,500. There are those who suggest that the Intifada, the Palestinian uprising in December 1987, may well have begun because of some of those 1,500, which takes it back to what I said to you. There is always a possibility of a steep price. But 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 at the end of the day, with the exception of Ronarad, um the idea of this contractual solemn obligation, it rules the day. What what changed? Would it, the families, as you suggest, got better at uh, yeah, moving the public relations? Who were, cap- who were captured in, 19, in 2006, um, one guy's name is Goldwasser, and the guy, other guy is Regev. Goldwasser's wife, Karnit, was a force of nature. She was highly articulate, very visible in the terms of the public eye, she knew how to, quote-unquote, use the media. Um, it's also acceptable to say she's a very attractive, very articulate uh, woman who clearly learned from Tami Awad how not to not, not fight the fight. And I think, in retrospect, I don't think there's an Israeli prime minister who, at the end of the day, could have said no to her. She had, um, she had clearly done lessons learned. She knew how to play the public relations game. She knew how to use the media. She knew, knew how to use um, world leaders. And she knew clearly how to use her own personality. I have never met her. Um, she and I have a mutual friend um, who says that she's clearly a force of nature. Mm. The, uh, Gilad Shalit's father, Noam, um, for five years led a public relations, I don't like the word campaign, uh, to get his son released. 
Um, there were bumper stickers. There were public demonstrations. Uh, I can tell you that on our family's car, we had stickers about Noam Shalit. Uh, we participated in demonstrations um, urging the government to um, make every effort to release Gilad Shalit. Um, and I remember one demonstration that I participated with my kids, Noam Shalit, the father. There were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people participating. He walked from their home in northern Israel all the way to the prime minister's residence in Jerusalem. It's a long walk, um, and we live not outside, we live not far outside of Jerusalem. The roads were closed because simply people walked with the father. Hmm. So this this gets in. It it sounds like Israel, the government, the people have made a decision, at least the majority, that this contract is so sacred that we will bring our people home. Uh, almost no matter the cost. Right. There are three groups or three categories of, of groups that object to prisoner releases or prisoner exchanges. One, group A, are those whose family members were killed by terrorists. Group two are those who say never negotiate with terrorists. And group three are those who say if you release a terrorist, t- terrorist attacks are in- inevitable down the road because of recidivism. The first group, those whose family members were killed by terrorists, their criticism, their very public criticism, is absolutely understood and treated with great respect because they pay the price. But even though it's, they're, they're listened to with great respect, at the end of the day, the government releases. The second group, those who say never negotiate with terrorists, you know, that is, you know, passe. I mean, we're, we're well beyond that. You never say everybody. Everybody negotiates with terrorists at some point or another. That's just the reality of life today. And the third group about those who say, you know, releasing a soldier and getting and release, sorry, getting a soldier back and releasing 1,500 or 1,300, whatever it is, will lead um, to terrorist attacks. Recidivism is always a concern. But here's the argument: we're getting a tangible, living soldier back. The threat of a potential possible is an intangible, whereas the return of the soldier is a tangible. So the government is getting a tangible, bringing the soldier home to his his family, and confronting the possible, potential, intangible of terrorist threats. That's in terms of cost-benefit analysis, in terms of, again, the term, the the contract, the social, um, solemn social obligation or contractual obligation. The tangible versus the intangible, um, that's one that, that in history clearly shows um, the, the government here is willing to make. I want to uh, have you talk a little bit more about uh, Samir Kuntar. This sort of give, takes it to the extreme. And, and reading about uh, you know, what he did, I, I could see why Israeli opinion was this is a prisoner who should never be released. Uh, shot an unarmed uh, civilian, bashed in the head of his child, this is just one of his actions. Uh, then he was captured, of course, held for for years, and he was released as a part of one of these uh, exchanges. Right. What was the important what was to note the... that Kuntar not only did he kill the father, um, Dani Haran, um, and then smashed his four year old daughter with the butt of his gun. He then went into the apartment. The mother, Smadal Haran, went up into the attic, and she had a she had their second child with him, who was a baby. And she had the baby with her, and she covered her mouth so she wouldn't cry. Um, in an unimaginable tragedy, she smothered her child to death. Wow. And it is 
That's why Samir Kuntar, who was, by the way, 16 at the time, has been considered, you know, the worst of the worst, the arch-terrorist, because not only did he kill the father, but he killed the four-year-old brutally on the beach. And then the mother smothers her own. I mean, it is as horrible as horrible can be. And yet he was released. What was the calculation there? What was the argument there? The argument was that in order to get Goldwasser and Regev back, um, whether dead or alive, that the government was going, it was clear that the government was going to pay a very steep price. The idea of leaving a wounded, I mean, they were clearly wounded, right? But wounded and or dead soldier um, in enemy hands here, here being in Israel, is something that that society won't tolerate. And I'll give you two examples. There was a military operation in 1989, if I recall correctly, in which a soldier was killed. And when the unit comes back, and all hell breaks loose, so when they come back to Israel, they realize they've left the body. The next day, there's a second operation whose sole purpose under enemy fire is to bring home the body meaning that those who were getting, retrieving the body were endangered to get a body because the idea of leaving the soldier, the dead soldier, uh, in Lebanon, unfathomable. During the 2008 uh, Second Lebanon War, there was a fascinating public opinion poll taken here in Israel. The public opinion poll showed very clearly that the public is willing to tolerate the loss of civilian life but the public is not willing to tolerate the loss of life of soldiers. Hmm. If you just joined us, we're talking about the Bo Bergdahl exchange. U.S. Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, as you know, was recently freed in Afghanistan in exchange for five Taliban prisoners from Guantanamo. Some say United States should not negotiate with extremists or terrorists. Uh, that is a hard and fast rule, as... Uh, Professor Giora has pointed out, and many others, as this debate has raged on, that is is a rule which is seen in exceptions, which have happened uh, with many governments, including the U.S. government, over the years. Uh, what about the uh, the Taliban uh, prisoners who were released from Guantanamo? May they not come back and hurt the United States? That's another uh, danger. Another argument that's put forward is uh, some of these groups should not be given legitimacy of, of a government. Taliban, for one example, we'll talk about that as we go along as well. Others are saying the U.S. government, as other governments, including the Israeli government, have, have uh, affirmed government has a uh, sacred duty to bring home all of its people from war. Amos Giora served for 19 years in the Israel Defense Forces as a lieutenant colonel. He's now a uh, professor in the University of Utah Quinney School of Law. He's an expert on uh, counterterrorism and security, and we're drawing some parallels between what has happened in Israel and other places with the Bergdahl case. If you'd like to weigh in on this, we'd love to get your opinion. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio, and Facebook, Utah Public Radio. More following the break. June is definitely busting out all over for most gardens. It's the month plants really begin to take off and grow. But along with that growth come the little critters who eat them. 
On the Zesty Garden this Thursday at 10, USU Extension entomologist Diane Austin will help you keep those insects at bay. In the green room, Shane Taylor outlines the wonderful African violet. Then in Petals and Prose, we'll hear part two of how plants contributed to the literature of Shakespeare. That's the Zesty Garden, Thursday mornings at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. I'm Tom Williams, host of Access Utah. In her memoir, Year of No Sugar, Eve Schaub recounts her family's attempt to eliminate sugar from their lives. Next week in an episode of Access Utah, we're going to talk about your attempts, successful or not, to change your eating habits. And I'd like to hear from you right now. If you go online to upr.org and respond to our question, what's in your diet, you can help guide the episode. By telling us about your eating choices and experiences, you'll become a valued source in the Public Insight Network, our source base of listeners who help shape our coverage of issues by sharing their stories and insights. Just go online to upr.org and click Become a Source. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. U.S. Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl was recently freed in Afghanistan in exchange for five Taliban prisoners from Guantanamo. A debate is raging in the U.S. Uh, this is nothing new for Israel. They've been working through these issues for several years. We're drawing some parallels and asking you what you think about uh, the Bergdahl case. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio, and Facebook, Utah Public Radio. Our guest for the hour is Amos Giora. He's now a professor of law in the Quinney School of Law at the University of Utah. He's an expert on counterterrorism and uh, security. He, for 19 years, served in the Israel Defense Forces as lieutenant colonel, held a number of senior command positions, and he was involved in uh, release of Palestinian prisoners in his role as judge advocate general. He recently wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times about his past involvement in prisoner release negotiations in Israel. He joins us from Jerusalem for the hour uh, today, so we appreciate uh, Professor Giora uh, being being with us. Uh, so what uh, period of time were you involved in, in uh, prisoner release negotiations, Professor? I was involved in prisoner releases when I was serving as the legal advisor to the Gaza Strip from 1994 to 1997. Um, the prisoner releases that I was involved in were related to implementation of the Oslo peace process between uh, Israel and the Palestinians. The peace process called for what is referred to confidence-building measures, and no doubt the most important slash controversial confidence-building measure was the release of Palestinian prisoners held by Israel and returning them, uh, in my case because I'm legal advisor to Gaza, to the Gaza Strip. And from the perspective of the Israeli public, obviously a percentage of the, of the public was opposed to the peace process. And for them, the release of prisoners, um, without a doubt, uh, highlighted, emphasized their opposition to the peace process. Um, at the end of the day, then Prime Minister Rabin, you know, he said he signed the agreement, he said confidence building measures, and we're going to go forward with it. But there was, um, I don't know if a public outcry, but there was um, pretty 
robust public discussion about the release of Palestinian prisoners, but we went ahead with it. Now, in in the case of uh, Gilad Shalit, I think there were, there were over a thousand prisoners released. I think uh, you know it's either one thousand twenty-seven or one thousand thirty-six. It's somewhere yeah. there. So just you look at the odds. Some of those men likely returned to, uh, uh, you know, to to commit acts of Absolutely. terrorism. It's to in, what's interesting, you know? as far as uh, I've I looked into this, as far as I can tell, yes, some of the one thousand let's compromise right. So one thousand thirty ish who were released for Gilad Shalit, the overwhelming majority of them have not, underlined, have not been involved in terrorism. Those who have been involved in terrorism, as I understand it, the acts of terrorism that they've been involved in are not the kind of catastrophic terrorist attacks that had been feared. Hmm. So I guess that's, that's probably part of the calculation of the Obama administration. Uh, for the release of Bergdahl, we are going to release these men. They may or may not return to harm U.S. citizens, but uh, that that's a possibility, not a certainty. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the Obama administration. So I, obviously, as I wrote in the New York Times, I felt that the Obama administration made the right decision. Where I think they failed, uh, frankly, miserably, is in explaining the deal. And I, when you are involved in prisoner release agreements, it's not enough to make the decision. You have to come before the public in a, in a coherent, consistent, intelligent, articulate fashion and explain why. And the administration, frankly, tripped all over itself explaining. They changed the terms. That one day he was a hero. The next day he was a prisoner of war. Um, and I think, as far as I can tell, I follow this stuff pretty closely in spite of the 9,000-mile distance. They were totally unprepared for the backlash, particularly from Bergdahl's former platoon mates, and how that would impact the public debate. So they got the decision right. It's aftermath in terms of explaining, articulating the, the public message. Um, you know, I don't have any hair, but it's a head-scratcher. Yeah. yeah. Now, public opinion is very important in, in all aspects of war, isn't it? Is it not? No matter what stage? Public opinion, um, you know, you people in the media love that term, right? The fourth estate. Um, the, the public, the, let's call it the, the court of public opinion, uh, the narrative, is in many ways no less important than the actual battle itself. Uh, and it, it's harder than it used to be. You know, when I was a kid back 100 years ago, there was CBS, NBC, and ABC. And then there was CNN. Uh, and then there were the, the Internet. And now there's a blog. I mean, everybody's a reporter. How you frame and how you articulate is essential, and you need to be a step ahead of the other side. And here, in the aftermath of, of Bergdahl's release, the administration is... is is, um, you know, five steps behind the fast-paced events, and again, trips over itself. That's unfortunate because it is, have, have been there. You, you can explain a release. You just have to know how to do it, how to frame the issue in, in, in terms of the public, take into account there is controversy over his, the circumstances of his capture. You have to take into account that there are, there are the blogosphere is rampant on, on, on Bergdahl. I mean, I've read a lot of the stuff. 
they had to have thought that through. Um, was the president caught off guard when Bergdahl's father turned to his son and Pashti? The answer is yes. The president was clearly caught off guard. Is that something that should have been thought through? I mean, there's a lot of, 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 of decision-making trees along the way in the context of post-decision, how to explain it, how to go, come in front of the public. Um, I think that the president and his staff um, caused themselves um, pretty significant problems in terms of public opinion. I think that's one of the reasons that I saw a poll um, this morning here, which is yesterday in the United States, right, that uh, uh, the, the numbers show that the public is very much opposed to this. And in the meantime, uh, some people in the media are, you know, in a clinical way, praising how the Taliban framed this. They, they say the Taliban took control of this. They they shot the video, and this is being used as you know as a, as a good propaganda tool for for the Taliban. Yeah, that video the of the transfer, what I call a transaction, the eighteen Taliban fighters heavily armed. The helicopter lands, the two or three special forces guys come to meet the Taliban guys, literally like captains of a football team before the game, and they shake hands. That's, that's just an extraordinary moment. Um, special forces guys shake hands with the Taliban guys. It may be that 24 hours later they're shooting each other, right? That could be. Um, but they shook hands. It's a transaction. That's the way to look at this. Um, the Taliban handed over Bergdahl. In return, through Qatar, they get their five guys. Um, the deal served mutual interest of both sides. I think from the perspective of the Taliban, I don't think there's any doubt that they portray this, and from their perspective, correctly so. It's a victory. Uh, they honored it. They made an agreement. They honored the agreement. They implemented the agreement. Uh, they shook hands with American special forces. They put the thing on, 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 on the Internet and they get their five guys back. Mm-hmm. From their perspective, win-win. Yeah. I wonder if I could have you respond to uh, another writer in the uh, New York Times, uh, Vicki Huddleston, who also wrote a, a piece. She's a former U.S. ambassador to Mali. Uh, she says that uh, some organizations should not be conferred through these exchanges or negotiations legitimacy, and that, uh, that she, she fears that we're conferring undue le- legitimacy on the, on the Taliban and she gives an example of, of uh, you know, some exchanges that happened in uh, in Africa, which she says emboldened extremists there and uh, and caused problems. You so, know, you don't get to choose who your enemies are. Uh, the Taliban held uh, Bergdahl. The president of the United States decided correctly that we don't leave soldiers in captivity, and you make a deal with whoever holds your soldier. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 I don't think it's I don't I don't mm-hmm. think it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, you know, I can tell you this that the, some of the people that in whose release I was involved in were, as you know, using the the phrase and I, in quotations, were some seriously bad people. But the larger geopolitics or the larger geostrategic considerations of implementation of the Oslo peace process meant that as difficult as it was to release some of these uh, people who were bad dudes, um, the larger strategic considerations outweighed, um, you know, the, the, the past or the acts, the past acts committed by these people. If you just joined us, we're uh, talking about the Bo Bergdahl case. Uh, he's a U.S. Army sergeant who was uh, held 
with the Haqqani Network in uh, in Afghanistan for, I think, five years. He's been released. Uh, the U.S. government arranged an exchange, him for uh, five senior Taliban officials from Guantanamo. And this has uh, provoked debate in the United States about uh, whether this is proper or not. On the one hand, uh, a sacred uh, covenant that uh, the government has to bring the soldiers home. On the other side, uh, could this not confer legitimacy? Or, uh, uh, of course, the, the the actors themselves released from Guantanamo, they might come back to uh, hurt U.S. Uh, citizens. And perhaps embolden organizations in the future to capture U.S. citizens for just such exchanges. These are some issues that Israel has been dealing with for many years. And our guest today is Amos Giora. He, uh, for 19 years, was in the Israel Defense Forces as lieutenant colonel. He's been involved in uh, release of Palestinian prisoners in his role as a judge advocate general and uh, very plugged into these issues. He's joining us from Jerusalem to talk about this. Um, by the way, Professor Giora uh, is author of many books, most recently Tolerating Intolerance, the Price of Protecting Extremism. You can join the conversation here at 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And you can join us by Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. One question, Professor Giora, I think is uh, on the top of a lot of people's minds. Does it make a difference if it's proven, these are suspicions at this point, if it's proven that Sergeant Bergdahl was a deserter? Simple as that. If Sergeant Bergdahl were, was a deserter, or if Sergeant Bergdahl's actions were in violation of um, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, that in no way should be a taken into consideration by the president in the decision whether or not to secure his release. Whether or not Bergdahl needs to be interrogated, investigated, tried by a, a court-martialed, Different question for a different day. But however he ended up in captivity, the, pri- the president's primary obligation is to secure the safe return of an American soldier who the president put in harm's way. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, quote uh, a former Navy SEAL, Marcus Luttrell. I read this in theblaze.com, mm-hmm. and this is a sentiment of I, I know you're probably hearing. Have you respond to this? Uh, He says uh, that uh, you can almost bet the Taliban will attempt to capture more Americans overseas after the Bergdahl swap. He goes on to say the way it works over there, they see something go down. We released five of their guys for one of ours. There's multiple groups out there, and they're not stupid. They're really uh, combat effective, so they're going to know. They're going to go after more people and demand more for their release. Um, Marcus Luttrell is, is right in terms of this is a consideration. We hear that here, after Gilad Shalit, there is all, there's always the concern of, of Israeli soldiers that will be kidnapped by Hamas. And there are constant warnings to soldiers about how to conduct themselves in order to uh, ensure that they are not captured or kidnapped. Um, every so often we hear in the press about near kidnappings. It's a real issue, absolutely. Um, you know, this is, I don't know if you've been to Israel, if the listeners have been to Israel, but soldiers used to hitchhike here all the time from base to base, from base to home and home to base. I mean, the, the roads were filled with soldiers hitchhiking. That's just the way Israeli society was. 
in the aftermath of a number of, of killings of soldiers who were hitchhiking, soldiers don't hitchhike anymore. So there are clear efforts made here to minimize the risk, um, potential danger to soldiers. Is it possible that Hamas or Hezbollah or some other organization is planning, as you and I are having this pleasant conversation, the, the kidnapping of a, of a soldier? The answer, of course, is yes. Is that taken into consideration in the when you decide to release somebody, like a kidnapped soldier? Yes. But does that outweigh releasing him? No. Hmm. In your op-ed piece, um, I'm quoting you here, you say, more bluntly, how much Israeli blood had the prisoners spilled, and how many soldiers and civilians would be killed as a result of their release? This is uh, thinking through whether or not to make exchanges. Obviously, the Israeli government and, and a large portion of the public came down on the side of making the exchange. But that that is a very blunt way of putting it, and I guess that's what a government and a public has to think through. Uh, it's, it, you're right, it is blunt, uh, because the issue is stark. This is, there's, this is not a kumbaya issue, right? I mean, there's the, the, the potential fallout, the negative fallout, um, is absolutely not insignificant, correct. Um, there's always the possibility of, of loss of life, of, of, you know, blood on their hands and, and, and so on. Um, but from my perspective, um, as somebody who served in the IDF, someone whose children served in the IDF, and as a member of Israeli society, I ascribe to the uh, iconic statement of dec- from decades ago um, by the, Israel's first prime minister, Ben-Gurion, who said, imposed on commanders the obligation that their primary responsibility is to ensure mothers that their children will come home. It's as simple as that. Mm. I'd like to go back to Vicki Huddleston. She's the former U.S. ambassador to Mali. This is something she says in her op-ed piece, New York Times. She says, I find it hard to see a difference between this quote-unquote exchange, talking about the Bergdahl exchange, and ransoms paid by France, Canada, and Germany for their citizens held captive by terrorists in in Africa. Is is that a meaningful difference, do you think, or or is it all sort of of the same cloth? Uh, Ransom or exchange? I don't know if it's ransom, I mean, it, it, and I don't know who, who, to whom she's referring. There was a deal made here when Sharon was prime minister for the release of a of a former officer who was a businessman, a guy named Tenenbaum, who had served in the intelligence corps, and Sharon released him. I mean, sorry, bar- bargained for his release and gave up some prisoners, some pretty significant prisoners. Um. There was real criticism of that one, because the argument went that Tenenbaum was a businessman, a business deal went bad, got captured by Hezbollah, um, and in that case, not clear the state owes him the same duty, the same obligation that it owes a soldier. Um, I felt that Tenenbaum, because he was a private citizen making a you know, business transaction, the state did not owe him the same obligation that it owed a soldier. The argument was made that Tenenbaum knew state secrets because he had served in the intelligence corps. I don't know what, what, how much validity to ascribe to that, but he's not the same as, as a soldier. A citizen, with all due respect to a citizen, is not the same as a soldier. So not the same contract, then. We, we may or may exactly not bring right. you home. Okay. Exactly right. 
Why not the same contract? Mm-hmm. Why, why the contract with soldiers? Uh, I think we can understand it on a certain level. I guess if you enlist because or here in Israel, here in Israel, it's a it's a conscript service. It's a draft. We make a deal with you. You come. We draft you. We put you in harm's way. We endanger you. You may get killed. You may get captured. We owe you the the obligation to bring you home. Mm-hmm. Take it one step further. There was pretty significant talk here that if Netanyahu hadn't made the deal to get Shalit home, it was only a matter of time before, uh, frankly, mothers would go to the main induction center outside Tel Aviv, stand there fully within their right, and, and actively engage young people and their parents as their young people are being inducted, not to be inducted, mm-hmm. to avoid the draft, because the argument would have been that the state has failed to protect them. That's a, that's a scenario that no prime minister uh, wants to go there at all. And in a draft paradigm, which we have here, when I turn uh, our kids over to the IDF, uh, my, I, my, my end of the contract is I turn them over to you, to the IDF. Your end of the contract is to make sure that my kids come home, and you'll do everything in your power to make sure that my kids come home. Hmm. There's... a uh possible difference i suppose with uh, with the us and their their contract uh, right. as illustrated by the fact that uh, a lot of us forgot that uh, sergeant bergdahl was being held captive so i've never met the bergdahls um, i don't know what their calculations were in terms of 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 the media but it's clear that they certainly didn't um, do a, a public relations campaign the way that here in israel that that um, Gilad Shalit's father did, or that uh, Karnit Goldwasser did. Um, they chose a different route. Um, you know, what's the expression? They each their own. Um, but you're right. Public attention was in no way in the U.S. focused on Bergdahl. I give a lot of. I give an example. I give a lot of. Uh, I do a lot of public speaking around the United States. And I would occasionally ask, you know, randomly ask audiences, how many of you know an American soldier is being held in captivity in Afghanistan? And, you know, the number of hands that go up is the amount of hair, amount of hair that either Bruce Willis or I have in our head, which is zero. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I that was, that, that's definitely the way they decided to, to um, you know, to conduct their business. And, you know, you know, at the end of the day, hopefully their son will come home. I'm not exactly sure what kind of condition he is. Um but each, all these families, I would think, spend a long time meeting with, talking with, consulting with people um, how to conduct the campaign. How, how do you do the public opinion campaign? How do you work the media? How do you work you know, your congressman, senator? Um, who do you reach out to? Um, and it's got to be pretty sophisticated. And, and again, um, Karnit Goldwasser here, um, I don't remember the name of her advisor. She had a very sophisticated advisor here in Israel. They clearly did lessons learned from Tami Arad, um, and she was relentless, absolutely relentless. Mm-hmm. But should it depend on on the families? Does it say something bad about us uh, in the U.S. that uh, we we forgot about Sergeant Bergdahl that he was held well, captive? Well, I take you one step further. Um, no disrespect to any of us. Um, in a non-draft culture, which is what the United States is today. The war in Iraq, which is coming back to haunt us, just go to CNN and see what's happening in Iraq, right? And the war in Afghanistan are 
so far out of the public eye, they are literally non-issues. And, you know, we need to remind ourselves that as we're having this conversation, American servicemen and service women are absolutely in harm's way. Um, but they are not in any way a part of the public discussion. Open up any newspaper. It's as, now there's a little bit of there's a, a, maybe a spike in Iraq because of, you know, the ISIS is making this, this clearly making a play in Iraq and the possible link to Syria and almost miles away from Baghdad and so on. But if not for that, it's as if it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I gave a talk two years ago to a group of majors in an American base who just returned from Afghanistan. And they were telling me how, far, how deeply appreciative the American public is of their extraordinary efforts. And I looked at this group of majors and I said, listen, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. You know, Kafka, don't kill the messenger. From the perspective of the American public, this is not really a news item. And in that way, Bergdahl was not a part of, not a part of the public debate. I don't remember um, Governor Romney or President Obama discussing Bergdahl in any of the debates um, in 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's true. Certainly wasn't on the radar. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Amos Giora. For 19 years, he served in the Israel Defense Forces. He was a lieutenant colonel. Um, and uh, he was involved in the release of Palestinian prisoners in his role as a judge advocate general. Uh, he's now a University of Utah law professor, an expert on counterterrorism and national security. He's author of several books, including most recently, Tolerating Intolerance, The Price of Protecting Extremism. Um, and uh, he is with us uh, for another uh, six or seven minutes. If you'd like to join this conversation, you're certainly welcome. 1-800-826-1495 is the phone number, upraxcess at gmail.com, the email, and you can join us on Twitter. We are at Utah Public Radio. Professor Giora, I wonder if we could, uh, as you sort of took us with your last comment, uh, broaden this out to uh, issues of counterterrorism and national security, especially in the wind-down of uh, the war in Afghanistan. This is one of the things that President Obama came in promising to do, uh, you know, get us wind this down in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I heard a commentator just uh, last week uh, warn that the American public is not going to like the result uh, after we leave Afghanistan. Taliban's going to have, uh, predictions are, a, a, you know, more prominent role than we're, than we're going to want. Uh, Iraq highlights that brilliantly, brilliantly in quotations, of course. Right? Um, the U.S. will leave Afghanistan. Um, by the way, you know, there's, there's a school of thought out there that says there really is no country called Afghanistan. It's a collection of tribes in, in the same way that Iraq is the Shiites, the Sunnis, and the Kurds. I have, would assume that it's, say, I'm not a betting person, but if I were a betting person, I would put my second-to-last dollar, never put your last dollar because you got to feed your kids, that as soon as the U.S. leaves Afghanistan, um, the place will, will totally implode. And whether it's the Taliban who come to the fore, whether it's al-Qaeda who come to the fore, you know, your guess is as good as mine. But um, I take you back uh, 40 years ago when the U.S. left South Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at Iraq today, um, the place is absolutely imploding. And I heard an interesting commentary here in Israel yesterday that, Take it back to first President Bush, second President Bush, when um, after Saddam falls, that the armies disbanded and and people are thrown out into the streets, soldiers, right? Uh, 
that may be coming back to um, to harm us. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, ill thought from my perspective. And in terms of what happens when the U.S. leaves, Iraq is, is I think, Iraq is, is a is a is a very troubling paradigm that I think reflects on what or suggests what may well happen in Afghanistan. You write in your op-ed piece, uh, you say, talking about the exchanges that the Israeli government made, did making the exchange make Israel stronger strategically? In the context of not giving it to terrorist demands, the easy answer is no. Then you go on to, ta- to say that ex- but accept, instead of accepting black and white dichotomy, Israel has taken a more nuanced and somber approach uh, of a more mature society. It goes back to that, that solemn contract with soldiers, we'll bring you home from war. I wonder, taking this out more broadly, what should we be doing strategically, especially with regard to counterterrorism? Uh, we're, you know, we're facing uh, threats. Uh, U.S. is on, you know, globally. So, quote unquote, king for the day, right? Um, one, I think that the president's drone policy, for instance, is is a, is a mistake in terms of how it's implemented. Um, what worries me a lot in terms of American counterterrorism is lack of narrow definition of basic terms like imminence, threat posed, self-defense, and what exactly is counterterrorism. And if you don't narrowly define the terms, if you don't narrowly define the threat, then you get caught in this, this paradigm of, of, I'm exaggerating a little bit, of uh, by all means necessary. Look at torture in the aftermath of, of, of uh, 9-11. Um, look at collateral damage uh, in the context of drone attacks. So in the context of, of American counterterrorism, I think we need to much more narrowly and concisely define exactly what it is we're seeking to do. We need to be very honest with ourselves that there are days that the terrorists will have a better day than we have a day, a better, a good day. There are days that we will have a better day. We need to be much more forthcoming in terms of the uh, American public. I think there probably is a weariness, weariness, weariness in, in the American public in terms of terrorism. We fall into this routine. Um, but I think that the, it behooves the president, this president, whoever is elected in 2016, to focus on, on basic terms and to apply them in a way that is more reflective of American principles, of um, American process, in order to also reach out to communities who live amongst the terrorists and to reach out to them and that show that you know we are not about torture. We are not about broad use of drone policy, um, unencumbered by any sense of, of of restraint. Those things trouble me greatly. We'll leave it there. We're out of time. We've been talking with Amos Giora, who's a University of Utah law professor and expert on counterterrorism and national security. Uh, he is author of uh, several books. Most recently, Tolerating Intolerance: The Price of Protecting Extremism. We've been talking about uh, security issues and the Bo Bergdahl case. Professor, thank you so much. Thank you so very much. Have a great day. Thank you. Professor Gior has joined us from Jerusalem. On Monday, we'll be talking about uh, whether or not you have changed your eating habits, what that experience was like. That's on Monday's program. Hope you'll join us there. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Tracy, bringing more to life. Your parents are in their home and say they're fine. You worry. How can you improve safety before problems arise? Ask if you can help with a general safety check, like the one available at sunshineterrace.com. Identify problem areas like handrails, loose rugs, low lighting, or grab bars. Simple improvements can make all the difference in an aging person's ability to live at home. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. 
Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members on Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. Featuring croque madame and croque monsieur made with sourdough bread and ham and cheese. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. Keith Bowman came to St. George to support a friend competing in the Ironman competition. While in town, he looked up his buddy from a much earlier chapter in his life. The StoryCorps recording booth was located just a few hundred yards from the finish line of the Ironman competition. Both men are public radio listeners and were familiar with StoryCorps, but when they walked up to the recording booth that day, neither were planning to participate in an interview. One thing led to another, and within minutes, they impulsively jumped into the booth and had an unexpected conversation. I'm here with my college roommate and best friend from 40 years ago. Our lives um, were intimately entwined for so many years, and then they just sort of went separate directions. Uh, my name is Keith Bowman. I'm 63 years of age. I'm trying to re- recall you know, what our, our very first meeting might have been. I think we joined the Sigma Chi fraternity at the same time. This was in uh, UC Santa Barbara, so we would have been in the same pledge class. My name is Peter Mills. We're both children of the 60s, you might say. I grew up in the Bay Area, right in the midst of the whole hippie movement. I mean, I was never really actively a part of that, but when you grow up with that around you and you see your friends getting drafted to go to Vietnam and having drug crises and, you know, you got the Jefferson Airplane playing at your high school prom, those were some historic times in some ways. What was happening in California, there was riots going on in Berkeley, and the years we happened to be in Santa Barbara, 68 through about 72, some of that had migrated onto those campuses. We had some interesting experiences like being tear gassed mm-hmm. by being innocent bystanders out on the sidewalk, wondering what the heck was going on, having the National Guard marching down the street. But the first two and a half years were like a paradise, and then the last year and a half were uh, confounded uh, and very complex due to the political arena. What we ended up doing was spending more time out of Santa Barbara. We had both been uh, sort of interested in uh, in river trips and the outdoors and the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River. The river running activity was really a, a whole new chapter for both of us in, in a lot of different ways. What I recall was, I know you had gotten hooked up with this river company, Grand Canyon Expeditions, and right. you were working for them kind of on a full-time seasonal basis, and that opened the door for me to contact the owner, Ron Smith. So I'd hooked up to, to run a trip. It, it was in August, I think, of 71. I really lobbied Ron Smith, the, the boss at the time, said, hey, you, you'd be crazy not to hire this guy. And he did. Then take it to the next step. We did this trip, and then uh, you drove with me to Washington, D.C., am I correct? 
Right. And what I remember about that trip was the huge sense of loss I felt when I dropped you off at Dulles Airport to fly back home. I, I never felt so alone in my whole life. It was the worst, maybe the best, but the worst feeling. And I remember watching that plane. I said, here I am. I hate being on the East Coast. I'm going to go to medical school. The whole thing scaring me to death. What I really want to do is just go back and run movies with Pete. And I'll never forget that, thinking, what have I got myself into? Yeah, I remember that, too. A lot of people would look at you with admiration, you know, someone who's been successful, got into medical school. I mean, certainly at an end of a chapter in your life and a start of a new chapter. And that, that's where our lives really kind of diverged in a couple of different directions. That turned out to be a 20-year venture for me, just knocking around the the whole river running industry and being involved in it at a time when it went through a lot of changes. In a way, I was jealous because, you know, you were able to stay and do something you really loved. And at that time, I wasn't sure I loved going to medical school. I almost quit twice. Not in a negative sort of way, but I said, you know, I wish I could have done what Pete was doing. You ended up uh, with that 20-year career, and I never got back to the Grand Canyon until two years ago. Here it is 40 years later, and we're just communicating like it was yesterday. I mean, we're talking about, but we never had a chance to do that. This is kind of cool. Is there a moment when, um, or like a memory that you have specifically when Peter came back into your life that was like happy that you got your friend back finally? I think this is the moment. Yeah. Yeah, really, it's, it's, it's. This, this, this is the moment. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at dixieregional.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.